0: Read with me from the beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear record that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, They were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I think this passage helps us understand something about how to be successful as God's people. How do we respond? How do we work through challenges in life? How do we work through disappointments, discouragements? What is there in this passage that that is an aid to us, to understanding how Paul can say, the more I spend, the more I am spent? How is it that Paul can, can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? The Corinthians had a year before this committed to assist the saints in Jerusalem because there was some need that existed there. And they evidently are stuck on high center. They evidently have not followed through with what they had committed to do. And so, Paul, seeking to stir them to follow through on what they had promised, goes to the Macedonians. And he begins this by talking how talking about how God had what? To make known the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now it's not unusual when we think about that word grace that we assign a definition that's not really a definition to the word as unmerited favor. That's a practical aspect from our point of view but that's not the word. And furthermore, when we think about the word grace we also often think about it as it relates to salvation. But this is not a salvation context. There's something that is a gift. There is something that is an expression of kindness, a beneficent attitude, a loving kindness, a gracious spirit that existed among the Macedonians that Paul is going to call forth as an example to the Corinthians. And I think there's a couple of things in this reading that help us as examples as well. First of all, when we think about this, and we think about the idea of what Paul has has helped us understand here, notice how he describes these people. He says that in a great trial of affliction, and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Notice he says their deep poverty. Notice how he describes that. There's an adjective that goes to describe the kind of poverty. It's a deep poverty that's there. This is a kind of poverty that they're poor, they don't realize how poor they are. In the United States of America, in our world, how would we define poverty? Is not poverty for us a home with one bathroom, and a black-and-white TV with a one-car garage? I mean, how many of us live in homes with multiple bathrooms? How many of us have multiple cars? How many of us have multiple color TVs? But when they talked about poverty, they were so poor that Paul said, we're not even going to bother them by asking them, to make a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But notice, he increases that when he says that in a great trial of affliction, if you put deep with poverty, put great trial of affliction. The idea of affliction here is not simply that someone said something they didn't like. We may not like it that someone says something I don't like, but that's not affliction. The affliction here is loss of property. The affliction here is these people are put in jail. There's some great affliction. There's something that is, they've lost property, they've lost right to everything. And that's how Paul describes them. How then do these Macedonians who have this grace of God given to them, how can they possibly... Think about having a part, a share in, oh, a fellowship with the saints in Jerusalem who have a need. Because their need is greater. Well, notice how Paul describes them. Father, bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Here's the key key to their heart. They were freely willing. He doesn't say they gave beyond their ability. We talk about this passage in in the context of giving. And I must tell you, as a parenthetical thought, I don't have a giving sermon. I don't have an attendant sermon. Every time I've ever preached on giving, the giving goes down. Every time I've ever preached on attendance, the attendance goes down, so I just leave giving an attendance to the Lord and you. But this is not talking about how much you put the contribution here. He's talking about not the gift they gave, the amount of it, but the kind of heart these people had. He doesn't measure them by the ability, he measures them by their willingness. He said, they were willing beyond their ability to give. And we say, yeah, you better watch that. If you you do that, you may go broke. No. We're not going to give more than we can give. You can't jump higher than you can jump. You can't do more than you can do. They didn't give beyond their ability. They were willing to give beyond their ability. Had they had more, they would have given more. That's what Paul is saying. And so when he looks at the Corinthians, the Corinthians are not restricted by ability. Whatever the gift is, Paul doesn't measure the gift. He doesn't give us the dollar amount here versus the dollar amount of the Corinthians. But whatever it was, the Corinthians are not said, these people are impoverished. When you measure the Corinthian gift, just the dollar amount, the gift the Macedonians give is going to be insignificant, it's going to be a drop in the bucket. But when you look at the heart and the willingness, the Macedonians stand head and shoulders above what the Corinthians could do. Paul said, I bear record that they were willing, freely willing, to give beyond what they could give. Now we can stop there and just spend our time thinking about that. Because there's something significant to that. Let's move to a second thing that he expresses here. There's something that takes place back of that. So he says, imploring us with much urgency that we receive the gift and fellowship of the ministry. When they look at this, they say, wait a minute. Paul, you're asking the churches of of Galatia, you're asking the church of, of Achaia, you're asking these churches to give. Wait a minute, stop, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, what about us? Why don't you ask us? Paul said, we didn't ask them, but they implored us with much urgency. They raised their hand. They want to contribute. Paul said, no, no, no. You people are impoverished. And you've got great trial affliction here. We're not asking you. They said, no, we want to give. We want to do that. They implored us. They, it was urgent to them. They want to contribute to that. Why? Because he says, and not only as we'd hope. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. The first thing we see about these Macedonians that Paul holds up as an example is they're held up as an example for their willingness. Their willingness. And then second of all, Paul holds them up as an example because they first gave themselves. Is it any measure whatsoever? Is it any problem whatsoever if people have first given themselves to have a problem with the willingness to give? If they first given themselves, then their willingness to give is going to follow because they've given themselves. They didn't ask how much time they'd first given. And notice what he says they first gave themselves to the Lord. Notice the order here. The first and highest thing is, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Paul didn't say they first gave themselves to us. He says they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then, and then they gave themselves to us. I bear record that they were willing beyond their ability. Why? Because they implored us with much urgency. They said they begged to be a part of it because they had first given themselves to the Lord, and now, second of all, they given themselves to us. They raised their hand and said, Paul, we want to be partners. Ah, there's that word again. We want to be partners. We want to be partners with you in this work you're doing. The Corinthians said, yes, we want to be partners, but they haven't fulfilled that. There's something in their wilderness, and there's something in them giving themselves that the Macedonians have done that these Corinthians have not done. And Paul's holding these Macedonians up as an example. He's saying, look, you Corinthians, pay attention to these people out here. Paul said, they first gave themselves. Paul said, they begged us to be partners. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will talk about on that occasion how that uh, he robbed other the churches taking wages of them that the Corinthians be not charged. There was something there among the Corinthians that for Paul to have taken any compensation That he had a right to us preaching the gospel would have been uh, an adverse thing for him and his influence. And so there were other churches that helped support him. And of those that begged to do it were the churches of Macedonia. He said, you sent to me once and again to provide for my relief. They not only had given themselves to the Lord, they gave themselves to Paul to say, we want to be partners in the work you're doing, not just partners with you in supplying the need for the needy in Jerusalem. We, don't be, we want to be partners with you in the work. Remember how we did that once, once and again with you? Paul had a relationship with these people and he knew their condition, but he wasn't going to ask, but they, they begged to do it because they had first given themselves. Hold your marker there and turn to Philippians chapter... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, just a moment. And you see this same kind of disposition and same kind of heart among the Philippians. Paul will say it in Philippians chapter 4 and in uh, verse 19 or back up to verse, uh, verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia... No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So these Philippians, like the Macedonians, have been a partner with Paul in the work that Paul is trying to do in preaching the gospel. In the very beginning of the preaching of the gospel, the Philippians had this partnership with Paul. So Paul has a need And the Philippians want to share in providing that need. The question is, how will they do that? Who will do that for them? Who's willing to take the gift to Paul? Don't know what they took to Paul. Just a a parenthetical thought here. You know, when we come to Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 6 and the passages we look at relative to benevolence, and we look at these Macedonians and we look at the The need that is there, like in Acts chapter 11 as well. How many times do we immediately think money? They sent money. But have you ever thought about that when there was a famine, there was a famine that affected everybody? And that maybe what they sent was not money, but they sent whatever the need was and they provided whatever that need was? In our westernization of Christianity, we think, okay, there's a need in Africa. We'll we'll send money. That solves everything. Money is the answer. It solves everything, right? But how how are these people who are so poor, who have no money, going to send money? Maybe they sent something else. Maybe there were goods that they sent somehow. So when we think about providing a need, it's not always the need that is met because there's a financial remuneration that is supplied for these people. There's something else that's there. You know, in Acts chapter 4, it says they came and they, they laid the proceeds at the gift of the fee of the apostles. It doesn't say they laid money there. We, we imply that's money. But what did they lay before the fee of the apostles for the people in Jerusalem? You know, they got 3,000 people there at least. Do they have bazaars? Do they have strip centers? Do they have Walmart, Super Walmart, Super Target that's there that can provide the groceries for all these people? We, be, we think sometime in Western terminology, and, and that's not what's taking place here on a lot of, lot, of, lot of occasions. And so here's Paul as he writes to the Philippians, and the Philippians want to share, want to be a partner with him in, in what the need is. How are they going to provide that, who's going to provide it for them? Well, in verse 25 it says, Yes, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, the one who ministered to my need. I don't know if this is how this happened. This is just my supposition. This is purely from the book of Ricky how this happened. Here you have the brethren of Philippi. They gather together in an assembly like this for however many there were. And someone gets up and addresses the congregation and said, you know, our our brother Paul, to whom we owe everything, is over here, and and he's in need. Uh, How are we going to do that? How are we going to handle that? I can just see the fellow in the back I will, I will, I will, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go, I'll go. Okay, Epaphroditus, you win. You get to go. You get to be our representative. You get to go to supply the needs that Paul had. And so it continues. Verse 25, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Okay. Okay. It wasn't just that Epaphroditus volunteered in the midst of the assembly. Now Epaphroditus goes to supply the need as the representative of the Philippians to Paul. First of all, he got sick. And the sickness was so serious, the people in Philippi heard about it, and they're concerned about his life because he's sick. Second of all, not just did he get sick. Epaphroditus risked his life for me we would say he put his neck on the line for me he was willing to go to death for me why? because like the Macedonians he'd first given himself to the Lord and then given himself to Paul you see the key to our success is Christians while it's important to have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed It's not because we got all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. It's not because we mechanically did everything right. It's because why? It's because of the kind of heart we have. We function up to the limit of our ability and yea, beyond our ability, we are freely willing to do more. I'm reminded of that widow who the Lord said, Gave more than all those who had who the, gave more than all those who gave out of their abundance. But do you remember that that widow? She only had two mites. How can he say she gave more than those who gave out of their abundance? Not because you measure the gift. Amity wasn't the problem of the Corinthians. The problem of the Corinthians was not the problem the widow had. She was willing to give and had she had more. If she had four, do we have any trouble figuring out what she would have done with four? If she gave all she had with two and was willing to do more, if she had more, what would she have done? She would have given more. First key to our success as Christians is that we function up to the limit of our ability. But that's not where we stop. We may not be able to perform greater than our ability to perform is. But we certainly ought to be willing to do more than we can do. And if we had the ability to do more, we would do more. Stingy. Stingy is just the opposite. I'm only going to do up to the limit of my ability and don't expect more than that from me because I'm not willing to go more than what I can do you see the difference in that and second of all is they first gave to themselves I'm only going to function up to the limit of my ability and don't expect me to do more than that because I'm not gonna do more than I can do to the limit of my ability wait a minute what's wrong there haven't first given ourselves to the Lord Because when we first give ourselves to the Lord, being willing to do more than we can possibly do is a part of what that is. They were freely willing beyond their ability because they had first given themselves to the Lord. And then they said to Paul, imploring with much urgency, beyond what we expected out of it. We didn't even anticipate this. We didn't even imagine this. We want to be partners with you. Why? Because they would first given themselves to the Lord. Could it possibly be some of our problems that we, we face with some of the questions that we, we can't nail down 100% and so we're going to get as close to the line as we can possibly get without stepping across that line is because we haven't first given ourselves the Lord and what we're still worried about is the Lord in our pocket. The Lord in our mind. Could it possibly be that Our challenges as Christians and all all the difficulties, all the difficulties that come that exist in our lives with one another and with the Lord is because we're not willing to do beyond what we can possibly do because we haven't first given ourselves to the Lord. I think that's significant, folks. I think that's why Paul uses the Macedonians with the Corinthians. He's saying, look at these people. They begged. They pleaded. They raised their hand. They stood up in front of us and said, No, don't pass us by. Okay, we've only got a, a few things to give, but we're willing to do beyond what we can do because we've given ourselves. Given to you is nothing. We've given ourselves to the Lord. And now we give ourselves to you. How are we going to have problems with the Lord and being partners with one another? When that's how we're described? Let's take the rest of the time. I want to just take some application points here from a couple of passages. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, you look at verse 21, and it begins this section really closing out the previous section, it's kind of a transition. He said, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then he goes through three things, three different relationships. He goes through the relationship of the husband-wife. He goes through the relationship of the parent and child relationship. But then he comes down to verse five. And he says, bondservants, be obedient to those who who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. We look at this, this aspect that he talks about here in the bond servant maybe the most challenging of all to think about, though we could certainly spend some time with the husband-wife relationship with the parent and the parent-child and about the challenges of that. But there's something about the bond slave that, that's different. With no apology, uh, no, no defense of slavery whatsoever. Paul, Paul's not talking about the rightness or wrongness of slavery. If what he's dealing with is the practical. Here's what exists. Who you are as a bond servant. How are you as a bond servant? Now, now keep in mind what this is. You're owned by somebody else. You have no freedoms. We have no liberties. We are property of someone else. That's noxious to us. That's poisonous to us to think about. But here's what exists. You are bondservants. And not only bondservants, he says, be obedient to your masters. As bondservants, be obedient to your masters. How are you going to do that? Here you are as a Christian. Paul's writing to the Ephesians who are Christians. Remember verse 1, to the saints that are at Ephesus. And evidently there are some saints in the church at Ephesus that are bond servants. Because he's talking to the brethren there. And here you have bond servants sitting before Paul as he's speaking in whatever the arena is. And he says be obedient to your masters. Well, maybe that's no problem because you have a nice master. Maybe your master really appreciates what you do. Maybe at the end of the day, when you've done all the master's ask of you, he says, thank you so much. I really do appreciate what you do for us and for my estate as my bond servant. Thank you. I'd rather think that was rare. The exception, not the rule. But what about when the master is cruel? What about when the master does not say thank you? What about when the master does not appreciate what you did? And even gets worse than that. How are you as a Christian who is a bondservant going to respond to your master that way? What's the key? He says, verse 6, Not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Doing what? Doing the will of God from the heart. Here is this bondservant, and he's going to do what he can, but he's willing to do more than he can do. Because why? He's first given himself to whom? Who, who's he really a slave to? He may be physically a slave to his master, but more than that, he's a slave to the Lord. More than that, he's a servant to the Lord. And so, when he plows as the master demands that he plows, he's not plowing for the master. He's plowing as unto the Lord. Why? Because he had already given himself to the Lord, doing the will, do, doing good will, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. When you, as a bond servant, are obedient to your master, it's because you have first given yourself to the Lord. What a perspective! What a perspective that would be needed. Then it's not the master you're serving, so the master doesn't say thank you. The master cruelly withholds things from you. But wait a minute, he doesn't go about grumbling and complaining about his master. He's doing good will and service as to who? The Lord. Who owns him? Who bought him with his blood? Who is really his master? And to whom is he really enslaved? It's to the Lord. How would that impact his attitude? How would that impact the way that he serves as a bondservant? Again, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We don't know what the question that is being asked is, but we know what the answer is. Because in verse 1, Paul will say, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's going to talk about the marriage relationship. When you look at the marriage relationship, how how is it that, that... there are some marriage relationships that just seem unendurable. There's no, there's no mollifying it whatsoever. This is it. It is over. And you see some that, that have problems along the way. That by perspective may have the same unendurable problems that the previous one had but they don't give up and they don't quit. What's the difference in the two? Could it possibly be that in the second, regardless of how unendurable it seems to be, that you have two people who are willing or even one that's willing to do beyond what they're able to do? And that this works because they have first given themselves to the Lord? How many of our marriage problems would be solved because when I look at her, I say, I'm willing to do this for you and beyond, I'm willing to do even beyond that if I could. But I have first given myself to the Lord and to you. And so whatever I can do, That pleases her all the days of her life. Proverbs 30 and verse 12. Whatever I can do to please her all the days of her life, I'm going to do why? Because I've given myself to the Lord. But when the focus is upon I, the A B C D E F G H I. let me, I. Not this I, I. It's upon I. You don't have people who have given themselves to the Lord. Further in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Again, we don't know what the problem is. But notice what he says coming to verse 10. Now, to the married I command you, I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Why would you, only, why would you think about departing? You don't think about departing because there's a problem, right? You don't think about it, departing while everything's hunky-dory, peachy-keen. That doesn't enter your mind. Departing only comes because there's a problem that, that arises. But now, then, notice what he's going to address. He says, But even if she does not depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. Her husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, Not I, the Lord, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Wait a minute. Now, why is she not to depart? Well, you go back to the beginning. And the God said, one man, one woman, Vow before God for life. But now you come to Corinth and you have a believer and an unbeliever. Now, keep in mind, that's not America, believer, unbeliever. The unbeliever there is an idolater. And so you have a believer to which idolatry is a zero consideration. And you have the unbeliever that is an idolater. How's the believer going to remain with an idolater. He says, well, if this unbelieving is willing to remain, you remain. Because here's the deal. That marriage is sanctified and the children are sanctified. They're they're not illegitimate children. This is not an illegitimate relationship. But why do you remain? Because you first gave yourself to the Lord. And you're willing to do all you can do And beyond that, you're freely willing to do even beyond that. To what? To make this relationship not just functional, but this relationship whole. How many times do we come to conditions in our life where they're not ideal? We we had this dream about how life was going to be. We had this dream about how our families were going to be. We had this dream about how our jobs were going to be. We had this dream about how our, how our marriage was going to unfold from, from the earliest days of our marriage, from the young, young marriage, to, to and it just doesn't work out that way. I mean, there are things that come in life that, that come to us all. And we do well as long as everything is going our way. But then something unplanned happens in a life. and we fall apart. But wait a minute. Have we first given ourselves to the Lord? What a valuable perspective. You know, today, we hear the psychobabble term a midlife crisis. Well, he or she is having a midlife crisis. I'm not going to suggest that there are not changes that take place in both male and female. There are changes that take place in both from a physiological, hormonal point of view. I I realize that. But you know how a midlife crisis is defined today? It's called the me generation. We're in the midst of a time in which the me generation... And my midlife crisis made me do this. Wait a minute. How is there a me generation if I have first given myself to the Lord? And if I've first given myself to the Lord, then whatever I can do, I can do, and I'm willing to do even more than that if I can do more than that. Would you ever hear one of these me generation proponents Get on the evening news, whatever your flavor or brand of that is. Or on talk radio and say, you know, I'm part of the me generation because I first gave myself to the Lord. No. We realize the insanity of that. That is absolutely stupid. That's a correct adjective, by the way. That is insane. Because people who first have given themselves to the Lord aren't focused on me. They're focused on the Lord. When some slight occurs, when someone hurts my feelings or someone is adverse to me, question, to whom have I given myself? I haven't given myself to me. I've given myself to the Lord. If I've given myself to the Lord and then partnered myself with others who have given themselves to the Lord, then whatever you say to me or about me really is of no significance because it's not about me. Question. Are we willing and beyond what we're able to do, willing to do? And have we first given ourselves to the Lord? the solution to every relationship problem with the Lord, with mate, with child, the bond slave, with life, is the Corinthians were willing to do beyond what they could because they'd first given themselves to the Lord. I think that's a powerful thought to consider. I think it's a powerful principle that we who are trying to be God's people need to be reminded about. Let's commit to first give ourselves to the Lord and then to one another.